it's just about three o'clock on Friday afternoon. This is when we have been doing our weekly county coronavirus update as part of our efforts to keep you updated about the coronavirus news in our community. Today, we are very privileged to be able to air for you a one-hour excerpt of the 90-minute program just presented by the Mendocino Latinx Alliance, a panel entitled Working Health Disparity on the distribution of COVID-19 vaccine among people of color in Mendocino County. Uh, this presentation just wrapped up. It included Dr. Andy Corrin, our public health officer here in Mendocino County, Judson Howe, the president of Adventist Health Mendocino County, Lucretia Renteria, Mendocino Coast Clinic's executive director, and Rose Abono, Round Valley Indian Health Center's medical clinic manager. This panel was hosted by the Mendocino Latinx Alliance, who has given us permission to air this for you now. Uh, the entire program can be found at their Facebook page and will also be posted shortly to our website, kzyx.org. I'm Alicia Bales here in the studio, and we're going to start with uh, the first part of the presentation. Dr. Andy Corin, questioned by Erica Nunez-Reyes of Mendocino Latinx Alliance. Welcome, Dr. Andy Corrin. Um, so let's just get to the questions. So the first question is, why has there not been proper documentation of vaccine administered to the public in order to record a vaccine efficacy and equity in the distribution? So that's a very good question. and Unfortunately, too involved an answer, but I'm going to give you the answer that I know anyway. As you may know, when the vaccines rolled out in December, all vaccinated were required to record every dose in the state's system called CARES. This is an old program that was used for vaccines, including childhood vaccines. And uh, this, this database, uh, we all are having to draw from to follow our success in achieving equity in distribution. Over the years, the states tried to make this compatible with electronic medical records in our doctor's offices. Um, so that the patient demographic information, age, race, ethnicity, and, ad and addresses could flow into CARES. Uh, but when COVID vaccines rolled out, the deficiencies in this system became apparent. And it's been very poorly compatible with the electronic medical records and was really overwhelmed by the millions of COVID vaccine doses that needed to be reported. So the compatibility issue affected the county probably less at our events uh, because we directly input to CARES, but the incompatibility definitely affected the clinics and some of them, their ability to actually input the data and flow it through to CARES. Um, in our county, the uh, extracting of the data has been terribly problematic. Uh, uh, the vaccines came into our county several different sources. CDPH uh, gave their vaccines to the local health jurisdictions but the federal programs um, with the large pharmacies to vaccinate skilled nursing homes uh, did not get immediately recorded in CARES. And now that the local pharmacies are getting distributions uh, from the federal government as well, it's a little problematic for them to enter into CARES. The federal government also dispenses through the VA and through the Indian Health Service. And these uh, these groups of vaccines are partitioned in terms of how they are uh, recorded and extracting the data has really been a nightmare requiring access to several database platforms 
And so to do this, we have an epidemiologist now, but it has not been reliable uh, in uh, up. In, we're getting more reliable data now, uh, but there's been missing data. So we have um, what we have internally uh, to evaluate our efforts and direct them, but it, we haven't published. We do have some some graphs I can I can put up uh, later on in, in this program if you'd like of what we have. But it's really just been the last week that we've been able to say, well, this is pretty, you know, pretty reliable data. And and so so get back to your question, it hasn't been easy to get the data because of the different plat really a lot with the different electronic platforms of reporting. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. My next question is, although people of color have been disproportionately affected by COVID, only a small percentage have received the vaccine. What is the county doing in order to distribute information and provide vaccine access to Latinx, Native American, and African American populations who are the most vulnerable to contracting COVID-19? So the county has worked with a group of community members that formed an equity task force early on. And now is in the process um, of, of uh, developing and, and hiring an equity officer position in the uh, Health and Human Services Agency. We've engaged with this group, UVA, Nuestra Alianza, and the county passed the budget for a pilot program of Los Promotores uh, Hispanic Community Health Educators. And they've been very active uh, since the contract was initiated in November. Uh, <clears throat> we've worked with the Native American clinics and the tribes and consulted on their outbreaks as requested and have offered assistance with testing and vaccination. We partnered with Consolidated Tribal, which has been regularly having testing clinics on the 101 corridor. And we've just met with uh, tribal leaders it was last week and we'll be continuing regular meetings now to improve our cooperation. Okay. <clears throat> what is the county doing to clarify any misinformation in regard to protecting yourself from the virus with proper mask wearing and vaccination, especially as schools, restaurants, and other establishments open up? Okay, good question. Uh, as I said above, we have the biweekly media updates. Uh, we uh, work with Menda Latino on a, uh, a biweekly morning show, and weekly uh, I have a discussion with uh, Jackie, uh, Jackie Orozco on El Punto. And uh, these are all different formats and different times to reach out to the community and clarify what's happening in the community and what the county is doing to improve. We provide updates to restaurants and flyers uh, recently in Spanish as well to share the information with them and their customers. And that goes out through our environmental health group. We're working closely with schools on their reopening plans, including partnering with them uh, for regular testing and supporting vaccines and providing information to parents through the notices that go out uh, from the schools. Uh, we recognize that with the vaccines increasing and new CDC recommendations and opening up more businesses, people are misinterpreting various different guidances intending to think that, oh, we're now safe and we can use less precautions. Um, and that means less precautions using less of the non-pharmacological interventions. So those are the least expensive and the most effective ways to prevent transmission. And this is very dangerous now to give those uh, up because as was stated before, variants are here in the community. We know that now. And we're very concerned about a new wave that could happen 
just because we let our defenses down. So at every update and press release, every opportunity I can, I'm emphasizing how important it is to continue to mask up, keep the social distancing, and avoid um, the, um, the the gatherings large, especially in small, um, uh, especially and 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 that's especially important with the more transmissible COVID variants that we found in Mendocino. So I'll I'll leave it at that. That's what we're we're doing it this way. Oh, let me just let me just review if you're interested. One of the issues is what do you do after you've had your vaccines? So let me just review the advice here as long as we have our audience. If you're fully vaccinated, now this is California Department of Health, uh, California Department of Public Health advice. It does not yet go as far as the CDC advice goes. We have a huge amount of respect for the CDC, but it's good that we have the CDPH because they make it uh, um, uh, consistent with the other uh, situations and other guidance that we have in California, and they actually have the jurisdictional authority. So if you're fully vaccinated, which means, let me just define that, two weeks after the last dose of your series, so if you've had a two-dose Moderna or a two-dose Pfizer, it's two weeks after the last dose, or if you've had um, one of the um, Janssen vaccines, it's two weeks after that vaccine, and you're within three months of the last dose and you're asymptomatic, Close contacts outside of healthcare facilities who are not symptomatic can at this point avoid quarantine, but they should still continue to watch for symptoms for the full 14 days and be more cautious if they are more vulnerable or live with more vulnerable people. Healthcare workers may return to work only if there's a critical shortage uh, if they've come in contact, um, and but the, but if they if they're uh, after work, they no longer have to be in quarantine. Uh, so we're hoping that the CDPH will update their advice for, you know, for people who've had vaccines uh, in the next week or so. But I've been saying that for two weeks and CDC put out their, their information. And we just have to wait until, you know, until they have a chance to parse through what are the pros and cons. So one, I think one of the um, clarifications, too, is what if somebody contracts COVID in your household that hasn't had the vaccine and you've had the vaccine already, do you still need to quarantine? No, that would qualify. Now, if you're fully vaccinated and it's been two weeks since your last vaccine and you have no symptoms, then you, that's, the, that's the situation where you don't have to quarantine. Okay. That so person not- should isolate because they can pass it on to somebody else. But the the feeling now is that this, the likelihood of uh, a, a person who's completely vaccinated transmitting it to another person is unlikely. Okay. Uh, my next question is a little bit complicated. According to Mendocino County's COVID-19 equity plan, nearly 1.6 million came to Mendocino County for COVID-19 response. A portion of these dollars was for a contracted epidemiologist to access and analyze data. Are reports available to the public? And if so, what are the current findings? Great. So it turns out uh, that trained epidemiologists are not e- uh, easy to find and hire. However, we were able to hire one a few months ago, a part-time epidemiologist. <clears throat> and initially, like I said, we were not able to publish the data because of problems with data gathering and concerns about the reliability. Um, 
as you know, the state began to really take the platform incompatibilities much more seriously in February and March when they decided to give their vaccine distribution program to a third-party administrator, Blue Shield, and they insisted on clear data. Uh, and so as they insisted more and more, some of the insufficient reporting and the problems with the, which were probably more problematic were the problems with the platforms came to the fore and they've been, they were working and still are working to clear up some of that information. Um, it's still an issue, but I think we're getting more information than we did uh, in the past. And so releasing some of this data that we've collected um, to our partners um is is possible now so let me try and share my screen if that's okay with you and okay. get through some of these and i am not an expert at doing this so this uh slide deck is just really from the data that we had uh run on the 24th of um of march two days ago so if we look just under the headline um the the most recent data that we have shows uh at least one dose of vaccine has been administered to 28,138 uh, people. The total vaccines that have been administered to people residing in Mendocino County is 44,245. And that represents a good, uh, I believe it's 40, uh, 40 to 41%. I did this a minute ago, but I don't have it now. So here we are, again, partially vaccinated, 17.2%. This is of people over 16 years and fully vaccinated, 23.1%. Okay, and then the percent administered by age group. So six, 65 and over, as you'd expect, because that was our first, uh, one of the first groups that we targeted because of their vulnerability. 42.1% uh, of our population, people 50 to 64, are 24.3% uh, of our population and 18 to 49 is 33.1% of the population. And of course the zero to 17 is very small uh, because it's not an authorized um, vaccine for those ages. Uh, the vaccines administered, now here's one that's very important uh, by gender and race and ethnicity. Um, women have received 54.1% of the vaccines men 44.9%, uh, and those who didn't identify themselves, 1%. Um, again, this data may be missing some that comes from VA um, or some of the other sources that are a little harder to get to. Get to. But, oops, where did I go? There we go. Uh, so this slide shows that, as you'd expect, uh, the Caucasian uh, members of the population have had the vast majority at 47.2. Uh, next has been the Hispanic Latino, 16.2%, and uh, American Indian Alaska Native, 2.4%. If we look at these two, compared to the, 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 the numbers or the percentages uh, in our community, they are getting uh, half in terms of um, their percentage in the community or, or some a little more than half, some a little less than half, and uh, where the white is, uh, white population is clearly getting more than half. Unknown are people, and uh, other are people who haven't de uh, said who they are. And multi-race is, uh, this is uh, non-Hispanic, but multiple races. Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander, 0.1, and Black uh, and or African-American, 0.3. We're gonna go through this next thing. 
We use this initially, this is by city and zip code. I hope this is large enough, but um, the, the largest numbers of people are in Ukiah. And so the numbers of vaccines have come to Ukiah. And this is gonna be interesting because I'm gonna show another slide that shows how by zip, by um, healthy people's index or healthy places index, uh, how this matches up. Uh, Round Valley, 6%, Fort Bragg, 13%. Um, I'm just picking out some of the ones. Willits is another large population area, one, uh, 12%. So what we did next was we grouped these um, communities into healthy places index quartiles. Um, and let me just explain that for a moment. Healthy places index is a, uh, is a measure that... Um, uh, that looks at the um, the amount of resources in a community. So things like education availability, uh, grocery stores for food availability, uh, uh, open spaces and other environmental issues, medical care, and income levels. So these are all uh, divided into uh, what's called a healthy places index that's used all around the state and in many other places uh, to assess what are the needs of our different communities. The, um, the lowest HPI quartile, so the lowest quarter of these zip codes is this one here. And interestingly, we have given a larger percent of that population their vaccines, larger than any other, because we have uh, pointed our, uh, our efforts uh, based on equity, uh, equity, equity distribution. The second group, which is a little bit better resourced, has had significantly less, but still, you know, uh, 36% has gone there, and that includes the larger population areas, Willits, Ukiah, um, Fort Bragg, and then it also has some other smaller areas uh, that we need to target some more. So that's, so these two are our first uh, most important priorities for uh, giving vaccines out. At the third, um, at the third um, quartile, We've given, again, in the range of 35, 30, 33, 34, 36% of uh, these people have been vaccinated. So this is a, a very important chart that we generated, and it was in order to, uh, you know, to direct our efforts more. So I think that gives the data that we've been able to collect. It's not, it's not perfect, um, and it'll get better as time goes on, uh, but I, I did want to share that. Uh, with the people who are who are watching. My last and final question um, is the county also dedicated funds for language and access, cultural competency. Uh, please describe for us how these funds have been used and what changes have been made in your communication to Spanish speaking populations. Great. So one of the first issues that the county has worked on, uh, and it was because of the, um, uh, the input of the equity group, was to deal with translation and have all of our orders, guidance, press releases, public service announcements translate into English and Spanish simultaneously pub and simultaneously published. So we, we're not publishing things now in English before we're publishing them in Spanish. Uh, we also do community education simultaneously. Um, and this was a Board of Supervisors resolution. So we've had the dashboards for COVID cases and now vaccinations in Spanish and English for some time. Um, and we're now contracted to have all the social media pages translated 
this is this is not a document by document translation so this has some high-tech uh issues involved but that's in process um and then we have contracted with real-time translation services for assisting with live streaming presentations like my bi-weekly media day press conferences uh that appear on social media and youtube as well as my appearances on al punto with uh, jackie roscoe and mendocino latino that appear on both of them on kzyx we've hired extra help um with uh, a spanish-speaking staff bicultural staff uh to help create information in spanish language first and then translate that into english in an effort to ensure a comprehensive message and this is just roll rolling out um uh, we're working on those messages and they're being edited and we also increased the spanish-speaking team within case investigation to support the community in in their primary in the spanish primary language so these were all efforts that uh, we, we definitely uh, know, knew we needed to do. Uh, there's more to be done. I'm not going to say it's over. Um, I personally would like to see many more people hired who are bicultural and bilingual. I think that's really going to stabilize, you know, the the Department of Public Health uh, as serving the wider community. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Corin. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Angelica Mian, and I'm also a steering committee member of the Mendocino Latinx Alliance. And so I will be moderating the second portion of the program today. Um, and with us today, we have three panelists. Um, I don't see Rose on, right, Roseanne? Okay. She's not with us yet. Okay. Um, so first we have uh, Judson Howe, the president of Adventist Health, who is here um, for Dr. Parker, who was unfortunately not able to join us um, due to an emergency. Thank you, Justin, for stepping up. Nice to see everybody. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Um, and then we have Lucretia Renteria, the Executive Director of Mendocino Coast Clinics. Thanks for being here, Lucretia. Good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. And then, of course, we have Dr. Andy Corrin, whom we all just heard about. Thanks for sticking with us, Dr. Corrin. So my first question to all of you um, is if you can pre briefly describe your role or your organization's role in the COVID-19 vaccine distribution so that we can know, the public can know how you all work together or maybe don't work together. Um, so um, Lucretia, if you can go ahead. Um, so since we had kind of formed a network around testing um, earlier, last year, starting in about April of last year, the community health centers around the county, mine being one of them, have been meeting with public health and working together to try to respond to COVID-19 and, and the pandemic. So in um, December, we started working on the vaccine efforts. And we actually get distribution of vaccines from the public health department, and then we administer them in our communities. Um, I'm here on the North Coast, and we, along with Adventist Health and Public Health, have held a variety of different vaccine events here in Fort Bragg or in the surrounding area of Fort Bragg. Um, we, but all of this vaccine has basically, basically been allocated to the Public Health Department and then distributed amongst the health centers. Um, so that's that's our partnership in bringing it to all of the different regions of the county. Thank you. Judson? 
Yeah. Good afternoon again. So yeah, I just want to call out, there's a unique collaboration that takes place in Mendocino County because of our size. A lot of us know each other. And in terms of our specific role, Adventist Health is what's classified as a multi-county entity. And what that means is that we receive our allocations directly from the state and then we administer, administer them under the guidance of Dr. Andy Corrin and local and county public health. And so um, we've used a few different mechanisms to vaccinate. One would be through our primary care clinics. Um, and then the other me- mechanism would be through mass vaccine clinics, which we did in collaboration with uh, MCHC, uh, Bechtel Creek, um, Lucretia and us work together on the coast. Um, we've used tapped into some county volunteers as well to make those happen. Um, as a result of all those resources and 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 partners, we were able to vaccinate twenty three thousand people so far uh, through that supply chain of vaccines. We do continue to do mass vaccine clinics as supplies uh, allow. Um, but the state has reallocated significantly over the last couple of weeks, and we have not received the supply shipments that we were earlier in the vaccine efforts. And so supply pending, we are continuing to do Thursdays on the coast at the CV Star Center, uh, Willits at the high school, and then the ARC Center in Ukiah. Thank you. Um, Dr. Corrin, did you have anything to add to that? Well, you know, as the health officer of Mendocino County, uh, let me just say, We've been very successful, our county, at getting distribution of vaccines out. And it is really through the cooperation of our partners, all of the clinics, the hospitals. We've really closely worked together, reallocated when it's necessary, distributed to the clinics as needed. Um, My role is bringing in information from the CDC and CDPH to the attention of our staff and our partners. It's mostly been about the safety and efficacy and recommendations for distributions. Uh, but I also work with our epidemiologists and uh, HHSA staff and our ethics advisory committee, as well as the clinics to make decisions about vaccine eligibility and verification recommendations. Um, I consult on the county vaccine events as needed, for example, safety issues, the need for consents, uh, consent forms for minors. Uh, and uh, educational materials at the events uh, and focused efforts that might be needed. But uh, the, the main uh, work that we're, we're doing together is with the clinics uh, and the hospitals to coordinate all of our efforts. Um, and, um, and this is going to be changing. I mean, in the next uh, few weeks, the state has decided we need a third party to administer uh, the distribution of vaccines. That's Blue Shield. And uh, they have made certain requirements, for example, the participation within my turn, the, the uh, access uh, that people will have to making appointments, and, uh, and also will be uh, the, the uh, program that uh, will, will collect a lot of the information on the vaccines that have been distributed, vaccines that are still um, on hand, and our number of appointments, and, and they'll, they'll be making decisions about how to distribute the vaccines directly to the clinics who are signed up and to the, uh, to the multi-county entities, to Adventist Health. Um, and we will, you know, we'll be reviewing that. There's a transition period, and we're all uh, you know, squeezing our, our hands and, and trembling a little bit, sweating a little bit. How's this going to go? Uh, but moving forward, 
uh, we will be uh, we'll be working together again. Uh, we'll continue to be working together, uh, and uh, and that has been the, the success story of our county. Thank you. So this next question might speak to what you just mentioned. There was a major announcement yesterday from the governor's office um, that beginning April 1st, those over age 50 would be eligible for vaccines. And then by April 15th, those over 16 would be eligible for vaccines. Um, I don't know if you all got notice of this announcement before it went out. Um, but what does this mean for the county or your organization to be able to carry out such a directive? I mean, are we ready for the ramp? What, what happens? Who wants to tackle this first? Um, Lucretia? Yeah, actually, it'll make it a lot easier. Right now, finding the people who are in these very specific qualifying tiers has gotten more and more challenging since we started doing this. Um, in January for the public, in December, we really were concentrating on vaccinating healthcare workers and then started more of our efforts in January. Um, and, you know, as Judson said, they're doing vaccine clinics here on the coast on Thursdays. We're doing on Fridays usually, and then public health has done a few vaccine clinics also. And unfortunately, we haven't had a central way to have eligibility lists that we can all call call off of or you know contact. Uh, so here at the clinic, we've been using um, our our electronic health record to look for people with specific diagnoses once the health conditions became eligible. We also used our computer system to look at people who were the oldest, anyone over 75 when we first started, then over 65 as we moved the age tier down. But it's very likely that our patients are also serviced at Adventist Health here in Fort Bragg. And so we're calling the same people. Um, and there was no way to know that. So there were a lot of calls being made probably to duplicate duplicative uh, by both of our entities, not through any uh, through any fault of us not working together, but just the fact that those patients existed in both of our um, systems, in both of our computer systems. Uh, so I think that now that we can open up the tiers that much faster and see the eligible population um, and also younger to age 50, I believe we'll see more of our Latino community eligible now because we don't have the concentration of 65 and over um, in that community for our Latinos um, in, in this community. So I, I think it will just make this much easier to um, administer and fill our vaccine clinics and utilize the increased volume of vaccine that we're, we're promised at this point. Hudson, did you have anything to add to that? You know, not really. I think Lucretia hit most of the main or, or key items. Maybe I'll just reemphasize what she said, which it, it seems that potentially AIDS tiers themselves were discriminatory uh, because the age tiers themselves didn't quite represent the demographic cross-sections of the community um, across ethnic lines. So, you know, that might be one of the bigger drivers that we've seen in addition to the, you know, the biases of social media and other things as well. So interesting call out there, but anytime we can pull down, um, you know, red tape that gets in the way of us efficiently vaccinating people at these clinics um, will be resourceful. Uh, the big issue still remains supply chain. 
you know, will we have the vaccines that we need? But again, I would just kind of re-highlight Mendocino County as a whole has been very efficient and effective at uh, vaccinating high percentages of the community. Is there anything that you would need to effectively carry it out? Like, do you, you think you have enough access points if we re, you remove the eligibility criteria, right? And that um, you have the access points and then you have the logistics to get that done and the people yeah. to get that done? I, I think I can speak for our mass vaccine clinics. I think we can do five to 10,000 a day if we have at the current structures we have, we just need the supplies. Um, and, the, and the most time-consuming piece of this entire process is not the administration of the vaccine, but really the vetting of the appropriateness of the folks coming through the door to be compliant with the recommendations. Dr. Gorin? We've developed an, uh, a, um, an, ethical, an ethics advisory committee within, within uh, Mendocino County, and that is a um, diverse group of people uh, that we asked to participate in the committee, and it was it's allowed by the state, uh, and it gives us backing to move to uh, different groups into the preferred tiers. And so we've made use of that in the last few months and uh, on several occasions. And as that became, you know, wasn't working, we, we moved and opened up other other groups, and we're continuing to utilize them. So, so um, moving to the 50 and above, and then to the 16 and above, another few weeks later, is going to be easier to fill the schedules, harder to fill the syringes. <laughs> so it really depends on how much vaccine is coming into our community. And we want to make sure still that we're targeting uh, and supporting those communities that uh, are the least resourced and need it the most. Oh, I, I should say that we have done a calculation from the beginning that along with our partners, it will, it will be very feasible for us as a, as a group, as a county, uh, to distribute at least uh, uh, 10,000 vaccines. Uh, and that's a conservative estimate. Thank you, doctor. Um, I don't know who was on the phone there. Um, so the next question goes to, we've been talking about inequities, um, and as you've spoken at length about Dr. Corrin is about the how COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted certain racial and ethnic communities. Um, and that outcome is the result of various historical structural inequities. Um, and also there's just a general mistrust by these communities of both the government and medical institutions. Um, can you speak um, to a specific equity strategy um, that your organization or the county is employing or will be employing um, to reach these communities as we see these this opening up? Um, and will these policies uh, be adopted not just in the short term, but in the long term to address these longstanding structural issues? And we'll get to you, Dr. Corn, last because you've spoken a lot of, about that already, um, but it not... <laughs> Plus I talk too much. <laughs> Um, but you talked about policies you, you already employed. Maybe you can think about whether or not those are going to be in place the long term. So I'll go to Lucretia first. So um, I think as a community health center, our history is in serving the underserved. And we are the safety net for our um, communities. Um, so I think that traditionally we are seen as a trusted provider of care and because we offer such comprehensive care, we offer, you know, from prenatal care through pediatrics, 
um, through adult medicine, um, urgent care type appointments, behavioral health, dental clinic. There are a lot of different ways that our patients um, connect with us. In, in my service area, we um, take care of about 10,000 people and that's 50% of the community. And um, a good percentage of those, about 40% or so, use more than one service within our clinic. And so I, I think that we already know how to outreach to our community and are able to implement that in whatever topic we're looking at, we, uh, whether it's cervical cancer screening or um, COVID-19 education and um, vaccination. So um, also many of our staff members are bilingual and bicultural. Um, we routinely do outreach through radio um, or you know, flyering at the different Mexican markets or um, at the farmer's market and at schools. And we partner with a lot of different organizations that can also help us get our message out who also um, serve the vulnerable populations. Um, so I think that just all of that partnership really helps that. And we are, we are here to serve the underserved and, um, and have a lot of um, different staff members like we have who we call our patient advocates. They're here to help people navigate healthcare programs. And so they qualify people for Medi-Cal, for food stamps, for our sliding fee discount program. Uh, we're the um, affordable alternative or you know, free services. We have discount programs for prescriptions for people. And so we do find that we're already serving this population um, and have have information readily available in Spanish, which is the, the main minority for our community. Thank you, Lucretia. Judson? Yeah, thank you, Angelica. You know, so for us, we, we, we noticed that there were some, there was a disproportionate share of Caucasian seniors early on and so we did a couple things. One is in the Ukiah Valley, we shifted the location of one of the mass vaccine clinics or the only one down to the Alex Rohrbar Center on the south side of town. Uh, and we did that in tandem with working with Vecinos and Acción. And we found that the most effective way to inform the Latinx community of the vaccine efforts was not through Facebook or social media or even email, or really not even phone calls. We did a lot of that too, direct um, clinic to patient phone calls. And that's for true for us. And I think MCHC did the same thing. Those are very low yield efforts. But one effort that did seem to be effective was um, working with community organizations that were already entrusted by the Latinx community. And so one mechanism that worked was old fashioned phone trees. Um, you know, word of mouth is a very effective mechanism in Mendocino County. And we had a lot of success through that. And so it elevated us up to a, sh a well short of where we want to be, but uh, better than we were. 18% of those that we vaccinated are, are, are Latinx and Native American at this point in time. Dr. Corn? Oh, you're, you're muted, Dr. Corn. So, you know, as I said, um, much of the success has been has been working with our partners, um, but we have also um, uh, 
moved some of our uh, energies to uh, individual uh, smaller clinics and reaching out. Um, we are clearly trying to amp up the advertisement to you know uh, through social media, but also uh, through other areas in the community, uh, both in Spanish and English, uh, paper, you know, flyers and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that we're trying to tap into um, community organizations that continues to work is through churches and also uh, connecting through the schools um, so that we can get over some of the hesitancy and utilize those uh, trusted networks to get the word out. Um, the um, there are other issues, other strategies that we're thinking about as we think about putting um, vaccine clinics up on Sundays, which is a day when many hardworking people cannot get off of work. Uh, during, or they can get off of work. Who can't get off the work uh, the rest of the week? They can come in and get vaccinated on Sundays. So this is this is we're putting in some energy into figuring how to plan some of the larger clinics on Sundays. Um, we're very happy that Adventist has. Uh, has moved to the south end of, of Ukiah so that they can concentrate more vaccines in uh, neighborhood, you know, in neighborhoods that are closer, uh, that are uh, more his a higher percentage of Hispanic and also lower resource people. Um, so these are ways that we're all that we're all working together. And um, I think I'll I'll end at that and see if there's any other questions or concerns. Okay. Um, I think the next prepared question we had. Um, um, may, may I interrupt you for a moment? I just wanted to um, make it, um, let you know that Rose Abano is on the line. She's the phone number that had joined us. So I just know that that additional panelist is here as well. Okay. From Round Valley Indian Health Center. Okay. Thank you, Rose, for being here. Are you the phone number? Um, you're welcome. I'm on the phone. Yeah, I don't have a Zoom. Um, so why don't you just tell us real briefly, um, thank you, I'm Angelica Mian, I'm steering committee member. Um, can you tell us um, what your role is in the vaccine 19 um, distribution? Okay, so um, I, I'm the clinic manager here in Cobolo and we have been getting the vaccine since December. So we're a very small clinic and we made a little group of people who do the vaccine. Um, I'm kind of in charge of making sure everybody's there and doing paperwork and distribution. The girls, um, I have several um, nurses and MAs. There's about eight of us all together. And one of them started at the beginning by um, just doing reports from all our patients and getting all the 75 years and older um, patients that we have and started making phone calls for appointments. We started with appointments and we did that up until the middle of last month. Um, we also did, we went to the Senior Citizen Center and um, just reached out to the different locations where we knew that we would find elders that weren't necessarily our patients. Um, we don't have a lot of Hispanic here that works at the clinic, but we do have one girl that's awesome and she um, is very active in her community and so she made sure that we got flyers out to everybody that she could think of and, you know, where they live and everything. And so we, we could get several people in. Um, 
one of the biggest problems we have, though, is that they're kind of afraid to come in because they're not, they don't have ID, you know, and things like that. So later on, we were able to address that. But at the beginning, it was hesitant. Um, we were just happy to get them in. How did you address that? How did you address that? Um, later on, we did drive-through clinic, and we posted that we, you know, we just let it be known that we were not asking for IDs. And it was a drive-through for everyone over the age of um, 18. We have Moderna, and um, so that helped a lot. And then as they came in, um, they knew, you know, that we we just did everything we could for them. And we also had um, Yadira there to help, so that they would feel comfortable. And she's she's one of our nurses. Um, and as as the first and second clinic was, um, you know, and there was a few uh, women out in the community who would go out and get a lot of the guys while they were at work and bring them through and stuff like that. So that was how we did it. Um, you know, we did flyers. We did the radio talk show for our radio station up here. We did that in Spanish. Um, and we just reached out as much as we could and just, I, I think mostly just try to make them feel comfortable that we weren't going to ask them for ID and stuff like that. We just wanted to get everybody vaccinated. And we also have, you know, our uh, agricultural people, um, transients. And so we're starting to get a few in and we're hoping that once we get the one shot that, um, that we'll be able to do a lot more because they do move around and they were worried about not being able to get their second shot. Right. So a lot of our, our outreach has been phone calls, flyers, radio station, and just word of mouth. Right. And I think we've, I mean, just doing the paperwork lately, um, our, our count is, um, I don't have an exact count for you, I'm sorry, but um, just from doing the paperwork and entering it, I'm seeing, you know, that we're getting a lot more of the Hispanic community coming in, which is nice. And we are open now to anyone 18 and over. We have been for like the last month. And we've had several drive-through clinics. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're not as big as everybody else, so we can move a little faster. You know, <laughs> we are a tiny little town. And what has been your biggest challenge in terms of the distribution besides the supply, the low supply? Um, we don't have a problem with supply. We get oh. our um, medication from Indian Health Service, our vaccines. Mm -hmm. And um, honestly, they tried to give us more than we could possibly use. I think our biggest challenge is that we are a small clinic and we only have so many um, people and nurses to draw from. But... I think we're doing good, and we do a clinic just about almost once a week, up, up until this week right now, and then we're trying to get it more on a schedule of a Friday, Saturday, one week, and then Saturday next week, and then wait till the next time and do it again. I don't know if that's going to work, but we're trying it right now. So that for two weeks, we'll have a clinic, and then two weeks, we won't, and then or three weeks, actually, and then on and on and see if that works. We don't have a lot of people calling in right now. At the beginning, we had a ton of people, and we kept track of everyone that called, um, whether they are were a clinic, you know, patient or not. And we called every single one of them back and um, put them on the appropriate schedule for their age and, you know, whatever, like first responders and things like that. 
And so for the last month, we really haven't had hardly any phone calls, but our drive-through clinics have been doing good, which for us good is like 170. It's probably nothing to you guys out there, but <laughs> that's a lot for us. So we did two this month, three actually this in the last two weeks, and um, we did 180 one day, another 110 the next day, and 178 one day. So we've also done some homebound patients and things like that. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing all that information. Really. You're welcome. Angelica? Yes, Dr. Corrin has a question. Yeah, Roseanne, Sorry, Roseanne raised a very good question. I know we've talked about it among the clinics and Lucretia, and it took a little time to, to break us down. But uh, one of the issues of um, verification of your identity and that has been a challenge for many, many people uh, because of suspicion of the government, because of issues of being undocumented, uh, because of just not having uh, documentation to say who you were or who you worked for. And now mm -hmm. that's, that's a recognition pretty well statewide that has been inhibiting people from coming in. And mm -hmm. in the county as well as other counties have adopted a self-attestation. You come in, you say who you are, uh, we want to make sure people are from Mendocino County. In another month, it probably won't be possible to do that. Uh, but we want our Mendocino County vaccines to go to our Mendocino County residents and not mm -hmm. have a lot of other larger counties come up. But it's great that, that you all went to self-attestation and minimized the, um, the uh, verification, you know, documentation uh, that we've been holding on to for too long. It just takes a while for people you know, the front lines to educate some of us that that's not necessary and it's really impeding progress. So, I'm well, you know, the, the thing is that we were afraid at first that um, we were going to get people from everywhere, you know, coming from San Francisco and everything. So we really didn't advertise a lot, but we actually had the vaccine just in town. And um, during this whole time, I've only had one guy from San Jose call came all the way up and you know, other than that, everybody's been either local. We still have them fill out the paperwork. And um, then I think the most we've had is some people from, everybody's Mendocino County. We've had a few from Willits, and we've had a few from, like, Fort Bragg or different areas. But nothing big. I mean, the numbers, like 180 people we did one day, eight of them were from Willits and Redwood Valley, you know, and stuff like that. And out of that eight, five of them were Native Americans who can go to any um, Native American clinic and get their vaccine. So, you know, that doesn't really count as being out of town either. No. But we don't, we have not so far, I'm hoping it keeps that way, um, had a problem. We haven't had a great big, you know, influx of out counters or anything. I have um, more like a statement slash question from Ulises on the chat box that says, let me start by saying that compared to many other areas, our county is doing a better job at administering the vaccine. My concern stems from the lack of data gathering regarding race and ethnicity and the unofficial distribution of vaccines. First, if we know that people of color are disproportionately impacted, how will we know we are prioritizing those communities for vaccine distribution and monitoring uh, and monitoring impact on their communities? Second, anecdotally, 
we have heard of people receiving last-minute vaccines due to their connections in the community. When there are vaccines available at the end of the day, workers slash volunteers call who they know so that the doses don't go to waste. While I agree that we should put the vaccines to use so they aren't wasted, are there plans to develop a process to expand who could be available to receive the shots so that social networks aren't key in distributing in the distribution of those last minute um, vaccines um, and instead focus on the disproportionately impacted groups? It's a long question. Krisha, did you want to speak to some of that? Or Judson actually raised his hand. Go ahead. Yeah, I can just. I can just empathize with that. And you're right, there is inequity through this process. And this one I want to talk about maybe just empathetically kind of the process from, from this side. And one is it's very hard to plan for how to handle extra vaccines because by nature, extra is unplanned, right? And so it's really hard to know the no-show percentages um, as well as canceled appointments. And I think it's important to recognize that especially earlier on, these vaccines are very time sensitive. And so you got to remember the paramount goal is to make sure that nothing goes to waste, right? I mean, that's, that's the number one driver in everyone's decision matrix. And then beyond that, you have the subsidiary decision matrix. Um, but I can speak for kind of how we have handled the extra doses. Um, depending on how much time you have, you could take a couple different routes and you would be correct. The Avenus Health did use social media um, and we do recognize the biases in that, but we would use that with the most time sensitive scenarios. Um, and of course, phone trees as well are very good for time sensitivity as well. I think that's where the myth of community relations and community partners comes in because really when you start going word of mouth, there's an inherent connectivity to that that is present in that mechanism. Um, you know, but beyond that, if, if more time has been allowed, we have used the radio, including Spanish-speaking uh, radio as well, to get the word out. Um, but that is an imperfect um, way and a, a less time-sensitive fashion of communicating to the public. And so we recognize and own um, that those strategies are not perfect. Um, but we will continue to collaborate with this group, uh, the county, and, of course, the other clinics um, on other strategies. And, and we're all, all ears on what we can do to better improve there. So we typically um, have standby appointments that we make, and it depends on how much vaccine we're distributing. We estimate um, how much extra we may have. We, as you may or may not know, sometimes you can get extra doses out of the vials, and that accounts for the extra. Or as Judson said, we end up with no-shows of people who were scheduled to come for their vaccine and then um, fail to appear. So, and, and that accounts for more extra. So as we um, try to schedule 20 to 30 people off of our prioritization list as a standby, we ask them to come at the end of the clinic. Our clinics are all done as drive-through clinics. And so we have those cars park. We mark them either with window marker, you know, in the order that they arrived, one, two, three, four, or give them cards of, you know, which number of arrival they are. <clears throat> and then uh, wait until 
we're doing our final counts, you know, how many, how many potential people do we have coming? How many vaccines do we have left? And start processing uh, those folks to go through if we have the vaccine. The, the difficult part is that you might have to show up and not get a vaccine. And we explain to our uh, standby appointments that if they show up and they do not get a vaccine, then we will prioritize them for our next first dose event and and the opportunity to get vaccinated in our next event they will be guaranteed a slot and so we have found people very accommodating to be able to follow that procedure and um, come to the clinics and so we're really pulling from those that are already eligible um, and looking at those being the um, the people that we would be using the quote-unquote extra on one of the um, Nice things, and and we meet with Dr. Corin weekly, um, so he hears from me a lot. Uh, and we've been trying to make sure that that we suggest who gets put in front of that ethics committee to add on. And so the the addition of lodging was something that I lobbied for um, for quite a while, and and was able to get that posted. And one one thing that I think, and going back to a couple of the other questions, including this one, is. As we look at the eligible employee employment status for people, we know where our minority populations, you know, concentrate in employment. And so I think getting lodging for the coast on the eligible list was a big boom. Uh, the week that, that lodging and logging were first announced, we saw about 77% of that mass vax clinic was uh, Latino. Latino people coming through. And so we've been tracking our data based on the uh, paperwork that we do at each of these MassFax events. I don't have it finalized yet because we've done almost 5,000. Um, we've almost administered 5,000 doses of vaccine. And next week we're slated for um, nearly 1,000 vaccines on second dose to be administered. But I hope to gather all of that and be able to show just how much we've been able to have our Latino community represented in those that we've been administering to. I want to thank our speakers today, Dr. Andy Corrin, Public Health Officer for Mendocino County, Judson Howe, President for Adventist Health, all three hospitals in our county, Lucretia Renteria, Executive Director for Mendocino Coast Clinics, and Rosa Bono, who joined us by phone today. She had to leave. She um, had a patient matter to attend to. She's the clinic manager for Round Valley Indian Health Center. Um, thank you so much for your participation and for this discussion today. And I also want to thank KZYX, who will be airing this um, program um, later on um, so that it can reach a broader audience. Um, today, we examined really important issues on how the COVID-19 vaccine is um, being distributed among people of color in Mendocino County. Um, what we've seen during the pandemic is a, a, an amplification of existing health disparities, which is um, shown shed some light on um, how particular groups fare, specifically African-American populations, Latinx populations. Another place where race has come up during the pandemic um, is related to uh, the spike in hate crimes that we've seen. So I wanted to say that Mendocino Latinx Alliance stands in solidarity with our Asian-American. You're tuned to as we mourn the deaths last week in Georgia. Um, it, it we it's something that we um, we our heart our heart aches. 
Um, and we ask those listening today to consider deeply how we are standing in solidarity here in Mendocino County as we address equity issues and strengthen inclusion. So thank you everyone for joining and to all of our listeners, we really appreciate you. And um, please know that this will also be available on Mendocino Latinx Alliance's Facebook page, the recording. Thank you everyone. Have a, a wonderful um, rest of your day. And thanks very much to Mendocino Latinx Alliance and Roseanne Ibarra for that presentation. You can hear the entire presentation with photos of the slides from uh, Dr. Korn's presentation at kzyx.org and also, as Roseanne said, at Mendo Latinx Alliance Facebook page. You've been listening to the local coronavirus update from KZYXMZ Mendocino County Public Broadcasting in Philo, California. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Mask Awareness Project of North Coast Opportunities. To hear this program live, tune in on Mondays and Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Williton Ukiah at 91.5 FM, and in Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Or you can hear us anywhere at kzyx.org, where you can also find out how to donate or become a KZYX member. Thanks for listening. Thank you.